couple left over. Terry's bringing them around. So if you'll raise your hand, it's the carryover from last week. Gifts of the Holy Spirit, lesson six. So if you don't have a handout, raise your hand. We'll give you what we have left. I didn't make any new copies. I always hope you stuff them in your Bible and bring them back. Doesn't always happen that way, Burl. Well, for those of you who didn't, who missed it, I took off my jacket already, but I'm wearing my pink jacket in honor of the mothers today. And I told Monica I'm aware, and it's Georgia's favorite jacket. And George, uh, you know, there's a couple of men who can really pull off pink, and it, and I work hard at trying to be one of those. So that's right. Uh, happy Mother's Day to all you though that are mothers and. Our uh, pseudo-mothers, there's a lot of mothers, um, and we greatly appreciate all that you do. I know I appreciate my wife. I don't know how I'd live without her, Verl. I've only been with her 11 years. How many, how many years you got on me? 28. Work on 29, so. Anyways, Brother Wayne, how many you got with Miss Jean? 61. I don't know if I'll make it that far or not. Not, not, <laughs> not that uh, Monica and I won't make it. I'm not sure I personally will make it. We'll see, though. I, think I got married later on in life. so It's good to have you all with us this morning. We're going to pick up our study of the Holy Spirit this morning. Any prayer requests or announcements this morning before we get rolling? Of course, it's good to have the Edwards back. They've been back a couple weeks now. It's good to have you guys back in town. Brother George. Yeah, Brian Jarkovsky's mother, Elaine Jarkovsky, is in, uh, she's in the hospital, I believe, but uh, they have not, I think she's pretty much on hospice at this point. Um, please keep that family in your prayers. I know Brian and, De- and, Bri- and Deanna and I think Brianna and uh, Garrett went down there. So keep them in your prayers. We had a great men's uh, breakfast yesterday. Those of you who weren't able to be there with us, I encourage you to... Look in the uh, bulletin and come next quarter. We're going to have them every quarter. So y'all look in the, we had some good food. Uh, they're talking about bring your own breakfast next time, but I told them we just need to cook again. Wayne, we need to get Steve cooking every time, I think. So it was good. It was good. Good time. All right, anything else? Let's go ahead and start off with a word of prayer. Please bow with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for another morning that we can wake up, that we can Enjoy the beauty of your creation and God another day that we can come together on the first day of the week as a family here at Dalreda. God, we are truly blessed to have a family as we do here at, at Dalreda and we're, we ask you to continue to be with us, be with the elders that shepherd the flock here as they look over and watch over our souls and may they continue to um, govern and superintend the church here as you would want them to do that you make sure that we are studying the things we need to study, that we are doing the things we need to do, that we are reaching out as you would have us to do. And we are thankful for them and their leadership. God, we ask you to be with all of us as men and our families and in the congregation here that we step forward and fulfill our duties and roles and obligations as being leaders of not only our families but of your church. And God, we ask you to be with all the wonderful ladies as they work hard and they diligently work in your field of service, as they teach one another, as they encourage each other, as they help build up us as a family. God, today we're most appreciative of our our mothers. 
And we're thankful for all those who have the ability and who take on the roles and responsibilities of being a mother. And God, we're thankful for them. We ask you to continue to bless them, help them to be godly moms as they lead their children, as they reach out to those who may be in need, who may not be their own flesh and blood, but they act as though they are mothers to them because they love and care for them. And God, we're thankful for those women because we know they are the pillar and they are the ability to, the cornerstone really of our families. And we're thankful for them on this day that we can raise them up and honor them. God, more than anything, we are thankful for Jesus because we know without him, nothing would be possible. We would not have remission of sins. We would not have a chance for eternal life with you in heaven. We would not have this church family. We, we would not have many, many blessings that we have because we are in Christ. And we're thankful for him and his sacrifice on the cross. And it's through his name that we pray. Amen. We're continuing our study on the Holy Spirit this week. And we are in what I have as lesson six. As y'all know, we don't get through a lesson in one week anyway. So uh, we're going to continue to trudge forward and trudge along. My goal is to get done with this lesson. And at least I want to get into the indwelling of the Spirit before the end of the month. So we've got pretty much three weeks left of this quarter for me to be able to finish this lesson and then get into the indwelling. So if I speed along or skip along uh, some of these points today, it's because I want to get through with these lessons. Uh, but I'm never going to get done with all the lessons because there's several that we're going to have to skip in this series because we just don't have time for it, uh, unfortunately. And that's just because there's so much there to, to do. I encourage you, as I have all along, please study, continue to have personal study on this subject. It is a very interesting subject, and there's a lot out there about it, uh, about the Spirit. It is not a vague and ambiguous concept. It is not something that is just an emotional attraction. Uh, the Holy Spirit is grounded in the Word and truth. And so because of that, you can open up your Bible and read about it. And uh, you will be able to see and understand what God has given to us about His Spirit so that we'll be able to be encouraged and edified. We left off last week talking about the different measures of the Holy Spirit. And if you remember, we first talked about the idea of, of without measure, and the only person that that is ascribed to, of course, is Jesus Christ. We, we looked at that scripture. We got into the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we ended the class with that as the bell rang on us, talking about really there's really two main places in scripture. Some try to argue a third. And I'll mention that in passing in just a moment. But you have two main uh, examples, descriptive uh, times, whenever the uh, baptismal um, measure of the Holy Spirit is described in Scripture, primarily in Acts chapter 2, and then you have in Acts chapter 10. Now, there's some argument and there's some uh, assertions made that Paul himself was also baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's not a specific scripture that you can look to on that concept. However, what Paul does say is that he uh, endure, en enjoyed the, the Spirit just as the other 12 did. And so when you think about that concept uh, and him being treated in the same way as the other 12, that's where the argument comes, obviously, that he was treated in the same way uh, that the other uh, apostles would have been. Uh, that's really neither here nor there when you, when you get to it. We know that he was an apostle, uh, we see his proof of that in his multiple letters, especially First and Second Corinthians, as he hammers home what he is uh, with respect to the Lord's church and defends his apostleship. Uh, Acts chapter 2, as we talked about last week in passing, and Acts chapter 10, of course, are two specific instances when the Spirit is literally poured out onto some people. 
And those pouring out is the, the greatest measure that you see in scriptures of the Spirit uh, in passages of scripture. And so you see the fact that, that Jesus uh, has it without measure. And then you have the next level would be uh, this pouring out. And they call it the baptism of the Spirit really because uh, it is, is like a full, encompassing, uh, uh, overwhelming uh, amount of the Spirit. And it comes upon the individuals there for specific purposes. And I kind of left you hanging last week, encouraged you to do some self-study on what would the purposes be of this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, we have a, I have a whole lesson on baptism of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, we're not going to get to it this quarter. But when you look at the purposes of the Spirit, you're going to see some very specific reasons while the Spirit was involved in those ways in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10. There were specific purposes behind that measure of the Spirit being poured out upon the people. Acts chapter 2, if you remember, that was the establishment of the church. And as the day of Pentecost came around, of course, you see there the purpose that underscored the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in that passage would be the, the idea of revelation and confirmation. And that's going to be kind of the, the underlying reasoning and purpose behind the pouring out of the Spirit there upon the people. Because if you think about it, revelation was necessary there in Acts chapter 2 because they, they all needed to be guided into all truth. Uh, they needed to be taught all things. They needed to know those things that were to come. They needed to be uh, known the, the terms of salvation. They needed to, to speak foreign languages to be able to speak to the masses that were there gathered on Acts chapter 2. And they needed inspiration. And so you see the necessary need for revelation there in those passages of Scripture. And of course, confirmation was also necessary in Acts chapter 2, because why? Well, it confirmed their authority to be able to speak on behalf of God. It would be able to show the people that they could be the voice of God with respect to conveying those things to the people. Uh, it would also empower them to serve as apostles, as you see there. Confirmation being the chosen group of Jesus uh, was elevated there in Acts chapter 2 because the people were able to see them do things that uh, normal people would not be able to be done. They could be set aside as special uh, ministers or special ambassadors for Christ, so to speak, as being his chosen apostles. It would also be able to make them ministers uh, and, and reach out to the masses and verify the gospel. And the passage there in Acts chapter 10, uh, 2 also in, indicated there that it would establish and strengthen the churches. There's a lot of different verses we could talk about, about the importance of those different things with regard to revelation and confirmation. But in Acts chapter 2, what you see is a specific circumstance uh, indicating uh, special uh, needs at that point in time for revelation and then confirmation of what has been revealed. And so in Acts chapter 2, you have that pouring out of the, the Spirit there, uh, allowing the uh, apostles to stand up to speak boldly. We have Peter's uh, version of what he spoke that day in Acts chapter 2. Uh, but they all stood up and they all spoke uh, to everyone in the tongues that they could all understand. And the reason was is because it was necessary that God's gospel... That saving gospel message was revealed to the people. In order to be revealed to the people, it had to be revealed to the speakers. So the speakers had to have that pouring of the Spirit on themselves to be able to convey those things properly and adequately to the people. And then not only was the message needed to be revealed, but it needed to be confirmed. 
In fact, the confirmation, that stamp of approval from God up in heaven showing that these people were doing what he wanted them to do was conveyed by the pouring of the Spirit there in Acts chapter 2. So you see the purposes underlying why there was a need for this uh, special measure of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And if you look over in Acts chapter 10, the very same thing is true. Every one of those purposes, those confirmations, those things which were uh, listed a moment ago, almost every one of them applied to Acts chapter 10 as well. Because we know Acts chapter 10 was when it was ultimately confirmed, not just to the Gentiles, but ultimately, if you look over in Acts chapter 15, to the Jewish brethren, that the gospel is for all. And Acts chapter 10 allowed that message to be revealed and then confirmed because of what happened there with regard to the Spirit coming upon. Terry. I'm not sure there's a clear answer to that question. I think it's a very good question. And if you all didn't hear what Terry said in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 10, the sending out of the apostles and the disciples, yeah, the, the, the limited commission is what we usually call that. Uh, God, or Christ gave them the ability to perform signs and wonders at that point in time. Again, I'm not sure that that ever ceased. Now, we're not told that it was, did, or did not. Maybe it was limited to the limited commission. When they came back, they didn't have that ability anymore. We don't know that for sure. We do know their com commission was limited in scope, limited in time. And so I think the argument could be made that, that those could have ceased. They may not have had that ability from that point forward. I don't know. I don't think we're told. Right. Yeah, and of course, Matthew 17 argues, did, could they not do it at that point because they didn't have that ability anymore or had their faith suffered to the point where they, they didn't have that full faith and credibility? Anymore? I don't know. Um, good, very good question. I, I think what you see, though, even in the limited commission in Matthew 10 and the ability of uh, what, what occurs in Acts chapter 2, which, of course, is the fulfillment of what we see in like Mark uh, 16 there at the end where you're talking about promising things to come to those who believe. You know, you have those kind of things that, that have a specific purpose behind them. The, the limited commission as well as Acts chapter 2, the, the purpose of those miraculous gifts, those supernatural type things that were able to be performed, were always for a specific purpose. And the limited commission, it wasn't just that they were supposed to go around healing people. That's not what they were told to do. They were going, told to go out and teach and they were given that ability. That ability helped confirm that what they were speaking was in fact truth. And so you see that same context, I think, in Acts chapter 2 as to what was occurring there. I think that there are some things that were added. I think you see when you compare and that, obviously, speaking in tongues was not before. Tongues of fire uh, upon their heads, you know, obviously a symbolic gesture, so to speak, from God showing his authority placed upon those who were speaking on his behalf. Those things didn't occur in a limited commission. They didn't go around with tongues of fire on their head. So, you know, there, there were some things that were different or maybe added upon them in Acts chapter 2. Of course, Acts chapter 2, too, as well, they weren't healing that day either. They were literally speaking. They were teaching. They were conveying those messages. So 
the idea there is, is that, that they needed confirmation in some way, but they weren't going to disrupt the speaking of the gospel to be able to perform miracles on the side as well. They wanted, God wanted the people to know that when the 12 apostles stood up, they had his authority. They had the truth. And what they were speaking was indeed uh, correct according to what God wanted. And so that's where I think you see, uh, and again, the pouring of the Spirit, this miraculous measure that I'm trying to kind of... Um, annotate here with regard to this, it's, it's a different thing than you see everywhere else. And that's why you can kind of pull it out uh, to itself. And again, we're putting this baptismal measure, again, as, as a human term. You don't see that necessarily in the scripture. Uh, but the idea of being poured out upon the people, that concept you do see. And that concept conveys the authority of God being placed upon humans so that what they say and what they do, what they speak, will in fact be recognized as being with authority. You see two other measures real quickly uh, in the scriptures as well. And I don't want to dwell too long on um, these two other measures because I want to get through the, the rest of this lesson if we can. But you see the evidential measures of the Spirit. And that is most commonly what we see with regard to the scriptures uh, and what we see with regard to um, what the Spirit allows those in the New Testament to have, especially his apostles, those that are speaking on his behalf. But uh, they were the, the evidential measure of the Spirit was given to apostles and believers through the apostles um, in the first century. And this qualified them to do what we would classify probably as abnormal type acts. Uh, and I say abnormal beyond what is na natural, beyond those things which we would normally think to be logical. Uh, much like when Christ took two loaves and three fishes and you know, created a, a feast for the multitudes. You know, those kind of things just are not recognized as being a normal occurrence. Uh, most of us would look at that and say, wow. And we would realize that something supernatural had to have occurred during that course of action. The same thing in the New Testament and the first century church as well, is that these proofs, these evidences were conveyed so that the people who were around would understand that they had not just the power but the authority and the abilities uh, granted by God. And so you'll see as the first century church uh, progresses and goes on in the, in the book of Acts especially, that there are the apostles using the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and the Spirit's working through uh, the apostles. I guess that's probably the better way to phrase it. I don't like to say that really you ascribe these things to the people because it's really God and God's Spirit that are doing these things. But the Spirit's working through the apostles and through the other disciples in the first century church to be able to convey those things which are important and reveal the will of God, reveal the word of God, and then also confirm the validity of that word, to confirm the validity of the gospel of Christ. And that's what the first century church uses these gifts of the Spirit to be able to do. And it makes logical sense when you start thinking about uh, contextually what they had versus what we had. You just think, in the first century church, they didn't have the word of God in written form like we do today. They were not blessed to be able to have the inspired Word of God. Uh, that's just not what they had with regard to how the church should be, how the church was established, how the church should conduct itself, as Paul tells Timothy. You know, those kind of ideas and concepts weren't written down necessarily uh, for them to be able to study and for them to be able to convey. Things were conveyed at that juncture through the word of mouth. And then there were letters that were written down. And if you think contextually here, Paul's writing the epistles during the first century church time. And so he is conveying to them 
by inspiration of God, what they should be doing. But they didn't have it all compiled together. They didn't have the canon of Scripture like we are able to enjoy and to be able to study today. And so you think contextually, how were they to be able to know that what Paul said was indeed true? Well, it's because Paul was able to confirm the truth with those things which the Spirit would confirm through him. Same thing with regard to believers in the early church. How were you able to speak and preach and teach in the early church? How were you able to preach a sermon, say, on a Sunday morning uh, when they gathered together and they worshiped together? Well, they didn't have the Word of God to be able to say, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's listen and let's look at what Paul says about love. They didn't necessarily have that. Now, later on they may have because the letters were circulated, obviously, through the churches. But they didn't necessarily have that. So you see the need and the importance of having these evidential type um, gifts of the Spirit which would, by the way, include gifts of prophecy, which would allow them to be able to convey what God's message is to the people and to be able to confirm what God wants us to do. They, they had the, the gift of knowledge or wisdom. We'll talk about those in a second with regard to the list that Paul gives us about some of the gifts that the first century church had. And so they had these gifts that really provided the evidence and the foundation for their faith, but also provided the edification they needed in the early church when they didn't have God's Word inspired, written down for them to study. And so the evidential measure that we see in the Scriptures are going to be those measures which we commonly call them as spiritual gifts, as 1 Corinthians 12 talks about. Uh, but they are things that the, the, the apostles and the disciples there in the early church were able to be able to do uh, to confirm the validity of the gospel. You also have what we call the sanctifying measure of the Spirit. And the sanctifying measure of the Spirit is given to all Christians. And this is a category, again, these, these words here are, are taken from passages of Scripture, but they're kind of titles and topics that we, we put on there and and you'll see when people talk about the, the, the Holy Spirit, there's the sanctifying measure. What is that? Well, it's given to all Christians. So when you read Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the, the, the concept there is, what are we talking about there? Well, what you can see as you go through that promise that is given to us and continues to be given to us is a gift of the Spirit, but it is not necessarily in a baptismal measure. It is not necessarily an evidential measure, but we are still given the gift of the Holy Spirit in a sanctifying measure, even today. It is given to all Christians. It is given to all. Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, Galatians 4, verse 6, uh, Ephesians 1, 13, 2, 22 uh, are all scriptures that help give us the importance of being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so how are we sanctified? Well, it becomes to those who are Christians, those who have fulfilled and obeyed God's commandments with regard to those things that we must do to embrace or reach out and grasp that eternal life that has been given freely to us. Uh, after we have been able to partake of that cleansing, after we have touched the blood of Christ, as Romans 6 talks about, we're able to enjoy the sanctification by the Spirit. And so that is, in fact, a gift. It is a measure given to us. And it's no, no dispute that the, the, the Spirit dwells within Christians. Again, we, I would like to get into the indwelling of the Spirit before we end this quarter because I've talked about it before and I don't want to leave it hanging. I don't want to leave you wondering what, what is this indwelling of the Spirit. But we are told that the Spirit dwells within us as Christians. And so the, the gift of that Spirit is in a sanctifying measure, a sanctifying way. And it's clear that the Spirit operates, of course, uh, by way of God's Word. We see that. 
Uh, we see the fact that that Spirit inspired God's Word, that He sanctifies us by reading His Word and understanding those things, and it's a vital, vital part of our Christian life and our Christian conversion. So, you know, when we increase in the Word, we'll increase in the Spirit, we see all those things. We also see, of course, that, that there's not necessarily a way that, that the Scriptures would tell us uh, that there is no connection between the, the Spirit and the Word. The, the Word tells us there's a connection between those two. And so that forms the basis of us talking about the sanctifying measure of the Spirit given to Christians, given to all Christians. And the fact that, it, I guess, how far they want to allow the Spirit to sanctify them may be the next question. Uh, but when it deals with, does, does the Spirit dwell with us? Does the Spirit bless us? Are we given the gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible says we are. And here we can see contextually here that we can be given a sanctifying measure of the Spirit in our lives so that we can be free from sin, we can live a sanctified and holy life, and those things all come because we have the blessed gift through the Holy Spirit. And that's what the Scriptures tell us, that tells us, uh, give us a good basis for that belief and for that uh, operation in our lives. I, in your... Um, the, the, the final point I just want to say to us, the Holy Spirit was not given in the same degree to all. When you read all the scriptures with regard to the Old Testament or even the New Testament, and the, there, there's not necessarily the same degree given to everyone in those contexts because there were some different needs, different uh, scenarios, different contexts for those things. Uh, but we do know that the Spirit was given, and even today the Spirit is given to us. The question, of course, ultimately becomes is, is to what degree or what measure do we have? And we looked at some of those things uh, previously, and we'll continue to look at them in this lesson as well. I'm not going to get into this. Uh, this is in the handout if you want to look at it there. But if in the New Testament, the Spirit has been given in several different ways. Uh, real quickly, he's been given to believers, his powers, gifts, and graces. Um, since he's a person, you can't give him. Just think about that. You cannot give someone that's a person, but it's his powers that are given. Uh, and that gets into the conversation about the personality of the Holy Spirit. And we start talking about giving the Spirit, you know, or I, I, I've been, uh, you know, the Spirit's on me, those kind of things. Well, the Spirit's a person. And so those kind of conversations kind of change a little shift in the focus and change in their emphasis, change in their applicability when you start realizing that the Spirit is a person. And so when you think about the Spirit being given, it's really His powers being given, uh, being given as a comforter, a guide, an advocate, a strengthener. Uh, the Spirit was sent, Galatians 4, 4. The Spirit was put upon in the past, we see in Numbers chapter 11. Uh, there's several different things, and that's just an, one example of, of that phrasing used. The Spirit was poured forth. Joel chapter 2, of course, uh, is the uh, prophecy fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. So you'll see uh, that phrasing used with regard to the Spirit being poured forth. The Spirit was supplied to man, Galatians chapter 3, verse 5, and, and he has filled men. Uh, there. And so you see a lot of these different phrases used in the New Testament with regard to the Spirit. I encourage you to look a little more, diff uh, a little more closely with that. But as we kind of move on, uh, what you see is the classification of gifts. And this is kind of where the rubber meets the road with regard to the gifts and our discussions uh, about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Usually you can characterize or classify them into two different categories. One would be the extraordinary, extraordinary gifts extraordinary gifts 
And then you have the ordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit. So a lot of times people classify those and those two main subject areas, those two main type of concepts there. And of course, what you see about the, uh, the extraordinary gifts, first of all, you know, the extraordinary gifts uh, and the Spirit given without measure was given to Jesus. Of course, we've already talked about that in John chapter 3, verse 34. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit there in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10, the pouring out. Uh, the pouring upon, the, the total immersion, so to speak, of the Spirit uh, is seen in the Scriptures there. And, and the, the extraordinary gifts that are exemplified because of that are obvious there. Uh, the idea of speaking in tongues, Acts chapter 2, just jumps out at you uh, there with regard to the, uh, the impact that that would have been as an extraordinary gift. Um, also, the ability to bestow gifts by the Holy Spirit would be an extraordinary gift. Uh, think about that concept for a moment here. This gets into the arguments and the conversation about uh, do spiritual or these extraordinary gifts still exist today? Well, if you look at Scripture, there are only certain individuals who could bestow gifts upon someone else. And the Scriptures indicate those gifts were bestowed by uh, the apostles, the laying on of hands by the apostles. Acts chapter 8, verses 5 through 24 chronicles a time where Philip had converted a large amount of individuals. However, if you look in Acts chapter 5 there, uh, there's a distinguishing difference there between them and others that you see converted in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, uh, Philip uh, had a... I'm sorry, Acts chapter 8, and I said 5... I even look at my notes right. Acts chapter 8. Um, Philip goes to Samaria, converts the, a large individual, a large group of those who are the Samaritans there. Um, if you go on down and look in verse 18, this is when Simon, of course, Simon the sorcerer, if you remember the story there, Simon had seen uh, the gifts that had been in verse 13. Simon himself believed after being baptized, he continued on with Philip and he observed signs and great miracles taking place and he was constantly amazed. So you see, the, Simon really was impressed. He wanted this same ability. He really wanted to do what Philip was doing. Uh, the envy, the jealousy may have kind of reared its ugly head a little bit there because if you can't continue to reading down here, um, verse 14, of course, the apostles in Jerusalem heard Samaria had received the word of God. They sent Peter and John down them and they came down, prayed for them. Verse 15, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And so you get into a, a good argument here. We could spend a lot of time on this passage that we don't really have this morning, unfortunately. But you see Peter and John going down there in order to pass along the, the Holy Spirit upon them. Uh, because verse six, 16 tells us why. For he, that would be the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen upon any of them, for they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so there's a large, there's probably a ton of questions going through your head right now. If you haven't studied this passage of scripture, I encourage you to dive into that on your own time. Uh, it's going to be very profitable for you to kind of look at this. I think it's very interesting to see this passage of Scripture. But you see that there was a void there of the Spirit in the conversion process in Samaria because the, uh, the Spirit had not been received by them. Uh, and if you go back and look, you're going to kind of see why. Who had taught them? Philip. Was Philip an apostle? No. And so the reason why the Holy Spirit had not been imparted upon them uh, in this situation here would be because Philip could not pass along the Spirit. Simon himself understood this because verse 18 says, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying upon the hands of the apostles, that's when he offered them money. And of course, we, we know how that kind of goes through. And they were, he was spurned because he offered them money. And they said, this is, you know, let your money burn with you pretty much. 
Uh, this is above and beyond that kind of con con conversation. It means something more. And so what we see in the scriptures here is the fact that the ability to bestow those gifts, to bestow and lay their hands and convey the Holy Spirit to another in Acts chapter 8 was an extraordinary gift that was held by the apostles for that they would be able to allow um, uh, them to do these things to confirm the revealed word of God. Now, a couple side notes real quickly. I don't want to leave you hanging on this story too much. A couple of points here. Sinners can believe and be converted without the Holy Spirit falling upon them. It's a good proof of passage here in Acts chapter 8. You know, the idea that every conversion story in the New Testament automatically meant that they would be able to have this miraculous ability at the point of conversion is kind of um, spurned by this passage here, isn't it? Uh, it's not, you can still become a Christian, you can still become a saved uh, believer without having the Spirit fall upon you or come upon you or whatever phrase you want to use. Because nowhere in here does it say they weren't Christians, does it? No, it doesn't. They just came down to bestow this gift upon them to allow them to have this ability, this proof, because the apostles saw the need among the Samaritans and they sent Peter and John to them to fulfill this need for that. Sinners can be baptized, as I said, without the Holy Spirit falling upon them. And, and ultimately, as I said in verse 18, it requires an apostle to give the miraculous gifts. Uh, Philip could work miracles, but he could not pass that power upon somebody else. So Philip, he could do these signs and wonders, is that right? Simon followed him along, was amazed, was astonished at all the things that Philip was able to do, but Philip himself could not convey that to another. And we also see the idea that receiving gifts is very important and receiving gifts is, would be an extraordinary gift as well. The reception of these gifts by laying upon of hands. Acts chapter 19, verse 6. Flip over there if you've got your Bibles open. Uh, but quickly, what you see in Acts 19 is that Paul here, of course, laid uh, his hands upon them. The Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men. And so you'll see here the idea of the conveyance and then the reception, of course, is also something very extraordinary. Uh, whenever they received these gifts, uh, when, when the apostle Paul laid his hands upon him and, or another apostle laid their hands upon individuals, they bestowed miraculous gifts. Those that received the gifts would work the miraculous. However, again, as we already said as in Philip, uh, they couldn't pass this along. So ultimately, and again, this goes viral to the, the, the conversation and the proof as to why we don't have these miracles today. When the apostles died, no one else could convey these spiritual gifts to work these miraculous and extraordinary things any longer. So according to history, you know, I, you know, again, we just have history tradition. John was the last surviving apostle. That's what we're told, right, Terry? That he's the last one. He died on the Isle of Patmos, supposedly, or at least exiled. He may have come back and died in, around Ephesus. We're not really sure. Anyways, when John died, if he was the last apostle... There would have been no ability at that point in time for anybody else to pass along or to give, bestow these gifts, these extraordinary gifts on another individual. Brother Verl. A principal reason why the death of the
God always operates with regard to need. Have you ever noticed that? He provides those things which we need, right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. And you look at all, what are all these things. The idea of taking care of us, making sure that we are able to survive, sustain the sustenance of our lives. It's a need-based approach. And the same concept with regard to forgiveness. Why did God send Jesus to come? Well, because there was a need there. God fulfills the needs that we have. Not necessarily the wants, not necessarily the likes that we have. But he fulfills the needs, and I think you're correct. The, the necessity, that need was gone. It was no longer needed for people to convey and do these extraordinary gifts because they had the inspired Word of God. That emphasis literally shifted from the inspiration and the work of the Spirit in the miraculous way to the work of the Spirit in the inspirational way so that we would be able to have those things. Terry. I was going to say, the miraculous does not automatically create faith. The miraculous doesn't always, it may create some type of belief at the beginning, I would say, but not necessarily an ingrained faith where you have action taken upon the belief, where you have a dedication that's produced because of the hearing or the observing that goes on with regard to the miraculous. The miraculous is just some type of a means to show and support what's going on. And I think if you see the multitudes too, think about Jesus' time. You know, you got 5,000 people being fed with five loaves and two fishes. I would be, I mean, astonished if I, had, if I was there. Imagine sitting on the side of that mountainside, eating five loaves and two fishes with 5,000 people. You know, I would be astonished. However, some of those same people are the ones who yelled out, crucify him, crucify him probably. Now, I can't necessarily name that for sure, but I would say there's a high probability that some of those who sat on the hillside eating the five loaves and two fishes miracle were probably part and partial to the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, what does that tell you? Miraculous does not necessarily mean salvation. Miraculous does not necessarily mean faith. It, it, may, not, it may lead to the production of that, but it does not necessarily mean that it will always happen. So, for the verbal. <laughs> no, y'all make good comments. Y'all teach the class. <laughs> right but the word can save I mean, that's where you get to it i think when you look at the book of romans the idea in hebrews where the hebrew writer says that the, the word of god is sharper than two two-edged sword right i mean it can rightly cut it can pierce you know between soul 
you know, it can really decipher and bring apart things that really even miracles couldn't when you get down to it. Miracles were insufficient to bring about the ultimate goal of conversion and full faithfulness. And so the gifts of the Holy Spirit, while being very important, and I think you're correct, Verl, is the idea that they gave us that early proof necessary to undergird. And I think I like your idea of the jump start. I like that, the idea of kicking off the church. And you're right. It, it really helped give us that little oomph that was needed so that the church was not just respected, not just that it was um, taken in consideration as being important, but it's also the, the, the spiritual gifts allowed the church to be confirmed as being right. I mean, just think about that. If you attended an early church service in the first century church, you know, you're, you're, you're going off the beaten path. I mean, you just think contextually there as to what you would have been looked at. You kind of see why people were spurned and why the church was looked at as some kind of a sect, possibly, or some kind of a, a weird group, right? Because they're meeting in houses, uh, they're, they're, they're meeting on the first day of the week versus the Sabbath. You have the, the differences there. And you see that the differences that are created uh, and, and still permeate even today in the religious world where Christians are looked at scornfully because they do some things certain different ways. And the reason why they could be taken as being credible and real and ultimately allow them to have the authority necessary to continue converting others, bringing others to Christ, is the beginning was the, the spiritual gifts that ultimately translated into the Spirit's continual work in His Word and the Word of God that was produced that took the place and took, I think it superseded to the point where it became greater. And that's why I think you see in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians 13, when it talks about when the perfect has come, you know, there's really not a need for all this other stuff anymore. And that's really what I think underlines the importance of that passage there is that miracles couldn't save. Miracles really didn't always bring conversion. All those factors that kind of go into what miracles were and these spiritual gifts that were, yes, they were extraordinary. They were supernatural. They were amazing. You know, just like Simon, I would have been constantly, you know, amazed by those things. But they didn't bring about what God's will wanted ultimately. And that was his word always had to have been taught and his word always had to be followed. The, 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 the spiritual gifts were just proof of the word. They were just confirmation of those things which were taught. And still believe, yeah. That's a very important uh, statement of Jesus because not everybody's going to get that touch. But the, the greatest, uh, extraordinary miracle is resurrection from the dead. You and I have witnesses to that effect, but we are blessed by Jesus because so you have been able to touch uh, like that doubting Thomas and yet you believe. Mm -hmm. You know, George, I saw your hand up. Are you, you good? Or, go ahead.
Yeah. Because the, the pure motivation behind what we're doing as Christians is seen in 1 Corinthians 13. And what we fail to realize, a lot of us like 1 Corinthians 13. I don't know if, uh, I don't see Doug, I don't see Philip and Abby. They're getting married next weekend. I, they may read 1 Corinthians 13, right, Terry? I mean, that's the most commonly read chapter at weddings. What's interesting is you really look at 1 Corinthians 13, and that has nothing to do with marriage. It has nothing to do with it. It talks about love, and that's great. But it has nothing to do with marriage, ultimately, there. Now, I think you can apply the principles there. I think we do that properly. I don't think we take it out of, necessarily out of context, applying it to marital relationships or even everyday ordinary relationships. But you look at the bookends of that chapter, chapter 12 and chapter 14, and it tells you the context of really what's going on in the church of Corinth. Now, Corinth struggled with the idea that these nine gifts, and I've put them up on the screen here, nine spiritual gifts enumerated in 1 Corinthians 12 that the, the, the church had a need for. The church needed these gifts for several different reasons, and we probably won't have time to get into it today because the bell's getting ready to ring on me. But the, the motivation behind them all became what, sh what should be the focus, and that's the love aspect. It's the idea of looking after one another, caring for one another, being patient with one another, being kind toward one another. All those things are predicated upon the action of the gifts that, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. These nine gifts were important to the early church for reasons why we don't need them anymore here. As Brother Verl talked about, they're not necessary anymore here. Why? Well, you look at a lot of these different things, wisdom, knowledge, faith, these type of a concepts there that, that are kind of described as Paul as being supernatural. We don't necessarily know what these extraordinary gifts were to a T, but we do know that, that the, the Spirit made sure that the first century church was equipped and had the knowledge and the ability to say the things that needed to be said, to be able to teach the things that needed to be taught, to know what was going to be happening on down the road so that they could be warned and, and encouraged against those things. We don't, we don't have a need for that today. Why? Well, we have God's Word. And you look at almost every one of these nine gifts. Now, you could probably argue like interpretation. We still need some interpretation. You go to Ukraine, you'll need some interpretation, okay? You will. But you don't necessarily need it supernaturally anymore. It's not an extraordinary gift anymore because we don't need to have that for purposes of confirming that that speaker who's speaking in a different tongue is, in fact, speaking the word of truth. We got something else better than that. We can compare it to the word of truth. And so all these things which are enumerated by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, talked about even further in 1 Corinthians 13, and then admonished even further in 1 Corinthians 14, and those concepts are not necessarily needed anymore. And I'm going to leave you hanging there. We'll pick up here next week, finish this lesson, and dive into the indwelling of the Holy Spirit next week. Lord willing, thank you for your kind attention. And guys, thank you so much for your comments.